I'm Paul Williams, President and CEO of Project for Pride and Living. Welcome to the Race, Place, and Policy podcast. EPL has created this space as a way of engaging with our community on the wide range of issues impacting our work on a daily basis. It's our firm belief that the complex issues around race, place, and policy are central to this dialogue. We thank you for joining us. This month, our conversation is about advancing public leadership and what it takes to create vibrant, healthy communities, including kind of how neighborhood building investment can play a role in that. We've known for some time that stable housing and strong neighborhoods contribute to healthy places, healthy lives, and improved well-being. I'm joined by Dr. Nisha Bachwe, Dean of the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, my alma mater. Dr. Bachwe has a long history and experience in leading research in this area and is at the helm of, the, of, of leading the Humphrey School. Uh, we're excited to dive into this conversation. Welcome, Dean Bachwe. Great to have you here. Paul, it's fantastic to be with you in the PPL community. Fabulous. Um, well, and I, I do want to say, I, uh, just in starting out, just thank you to the Humphrey School um, for recognizing PPL this last year with a Distinguished uh, Organizational Leadership Award. Um, that award, I think, really is a, is a wonderful acknowledgement of PPL's 50 plus years of impact and innovation uh, in this community. And, and as I said, the evening of that uh, award, there are so many intersections between the Humphrey School's work, um, um, literally dozens of students over the years, projects and, and research that uh, have intersected with our work over the years. So it was really an honor. Joe Salvaggio, our founder, was uh, with me that evening. And so um, we had a lot of friends in the room, but but really appreciate the acknowledgement. So well, let's- uh, Paul, I firmly believe in uh, giving people their flowers when they're due, and that is at the time of service. And so the work that PPL um, has done in this community uh, impacts generations. And you are worthy, PPL and all of the staff there, of all of the p- positive impacts that you've made in this community. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, so you're still fairly new to Minnesota and, and coming to us with an already distinguished uh, career. So can, can you just start by just telling us a little bit about your background and kind of where you're from and, and what brought you to this work? Absolutely. So, Paul, you can't tell by my accent, but I was born in Jamaica. <laughs> um, my uh, parents um, uh, left Jamaica and uh, took us to Miami uh, when I was really little. And one of the things that I've shared before and I'll emphasize now is um, the foundational value that was really driven into to my sisters and I is that education is the key to um, to your dreams. Uh, and, uh, if you do not invest in education, uh, and that's not necessarily that you're going to, um, a private school or you're, you know, um, taking extra classes, but you're picking up a book and you're reading, you're having conversations with elders, you're, you're having this deep engagement that really being curious and educating yourself is what my, parents really drove into me. And so I went through schools in Miami. I actually graduated from a Title I school in Miami, Florida. So um, majority of the kids there were on free and reduced lunch. And I was able to um, apply and get accepted to Harvard University. 
uh, finished at Harvard with an environmental science and public policy degree, and just fell in love with um, understanding how things work. I really wanted to understand how and what was the root of what made the society run. And so that's why policy has been core uh, to my curiosity. And so the Humphrey School is a fantastic place for me to land. I have to say, you know, it's it's home because my family's here. They're in Golden Valley and they've mm. been here for three generations. And uh, having done some work with people at the University of Minnesota and the Humphrey School through the Sustainable Research Network, it was a big grant from a couple of years ago. Um, it was a place that I was inspired to come back to. Mm. Uh, and so is is environmental science and policy kind of your core area of, of interest and work and, and kind of your research? So my research absolutely is kind of founded based in the environment, but not necessarily only the green environment. The environment um, by way of the places where we live, work, play, study, um, uh, eat just it's it's the broader ecosystem that we operate and live in, and I see that as a broad uh, example or frame for the environment um, because when then I try to apply lessons in my work, I'm looking at ways that youth in particular, so our uh, say middle school to high school and even college age kids, how they can figure out how the spaces that they're living in this environment that they live in presents healthy and unhealthy choices mm. and how they can um, be a part of increasing the opportunity for healthy choices. So those healthy choices would include access to fresh um, and good food, mm. uh, safe and affordable transit, uh, safe and affordable housing, quality education. And so what is the role of youth in advocating for these health promoting options? So when you eat more healthy food over time, you realize a better health out, better outcomes. You live longer. If you don't have access to those healthy options, those healthy food sources, you do not live as long. And mm. so it's the accumulation of healthy and unhealthy choices in these environments that I really want to see our youth take charge of, own, and yeah. articulate ways to to have healthy choices for everybody. Yeah. Uh, I, you and I have talked about this before, but PPL runs two alternative high schools um, with with kids who, who, for any number of reasons, aren't making it in the Minneapolis public schools. Uh, we have a kind of high-touch, high-expectation um, uh, high engagement uh, educational model here, but a lot of what we've been doing is around um, youth voice and and youth youth engagement and having young people taking on those choices that you're talking about, but but having some agency in them. And so we've had some really um, some profound learnings actually here in our broader youth employment work, which is very much rooted in I think a lot of what you're uh, what you're talking about. Um, so let, I want to just back up in terms of your time here now at the Humphrey School. I know you all just uh, 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 put together a new strategic plan. Um, and, and can you just talk a little bit about kind of your priorities at the Humphrey School and, and, um, and what you're excited about kind of coming out of that strategic plan? 
Oh, absolutely. So as uh, I think often when people hear the words, the word strategic plan, their eyes may glaze over. <laughs> um, and so we went into this process knowing that that is the effect of, uh, you know, the, the phrase and even some of the traditional processes of strategic planning. Um, we made sure that the voice of over 500 members of the Humphrey community uh, lent uh, their voices to the creation and final structure of the plan. I'll just say our number one priority at the Humphrey School is student success. That's why we're here. We are here to educate students so they can advance the common good throughout the world. And it's not just the world. It's, it's our world. It's our diverse world. We have ownership of it because we have impact on it. And if we don't uh, lean in and engage and have um, uh, the commitment to creating a better thriving environment for everyone, then we're going to cede that ground to other forces. And so the Humphrey School is um, focused on student success. Those students who graduate like you, Paul, go out to have positive impacts on the world. One of our alum uh, is at the UN, and she's uh, impacting global sustainability, uh, Sanda Ojiamba. She'll actually join us uh, here in Minnesota uh, later in the spring. Uh, we have alum who are working um, in uh, in the justice system. We have alum who are um, in the state legislature and have been a part of the Minnesota miracle from the last session um, around climate justice and resilience. Um, we have young alum like Ruth Finn Gardner, who is just kind of making his way into the world um, and doing it in such a courageous way. And that courage doesn't only come from the Humphrey School. The students who come to the Humphrey School um, want to have an impact on the world. And so we take that passion, that those values and shape it with the Humphrey education. So strategic plan, it boils down to wanting to make sure that we invest in student success so we can have a strong society, a strong democracy, and continue to improve, uh, create improvements for all um, people. Yeah, that, that's exciting. And, and I know, uh, um, <clears throat> again, I mentioned earlier, we, we've had a number of Humphrey students, fellows here um, uh, that, that have spent time with us. And, and just, again, so many different projects at PTL where we've benefited from kind of that engagement. And I mean, one of the things I have been harping on for years with several deans is the importance actually of community engagement, of getting, getting those students and the Humphrey School itself outside the walls of the Humphrey School and yes. actually out into the community. I mean, this is such a fertile uh, environment uh, for, for students and faculty to get out and get engaged in community work. Uh, you mentioned certainly at the legislature and in budget offices, but also out in neighborhoods and, and, and communities. So I actually want to shift a little bit to um, kind of, again, both your work, but also work that I know has been done at, at the Humphrey School. And just um, that work is centered around place, urban planning, um, you know, healthy places, as you talked about environmental science, um, youth engagements, um, you, you know, and COVID certainly uh, brought a lot of that to the to the forefront, right? And really, really magnified how important place is. You know, one thing is I've been saying for years, if you didn't have a safe place to live, mm -hmm. you were at risk of catching this virus. If you didn't have 
So housing was healthcare. Housing yes. was and is education. All of us were educating our kids from home. If you didn't have a stable place to live, you weren't able to, to pursue education, right, for your young people. Housing has always been childcare. Housing was all, all employment programs and training turned to kind of a, a virtual. And so if you had a stable place to live. So that certainly speaks to the centrality of, of housing. But as we come out of that, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm curious as to how, um, how you're thinking. How has place um, and neighborhoods changed coming out of the pandemic, coming out of, the, mm. out of COVID um, uh, in, 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 in kind of in, in your thinking? The pandemic uh, forced us to reconsider um, a lot of the spaces we uh, we sit in and move through. And so, if we take for an for example, parks. Early on in the pandemic, I remember, and and you and some of your listeners may rem remember. Um, there were signs across the United States in parks that said that the parks were closed. Um, and that was because people just didn't know, didn't know how the um, COVID um, virus mm -hmm. was uh, transmitted and whether it was safe. And then at a certain point, parks were reopened. But I, you know, I recall conversations that were being held um, at the level of the Atlanta Beltline and, um, uh, and other similar rails to trails programs where they take railroads and make them linear park systems. Um, and what they found was in these parks, they were jammed during COVID because there was nowhere else for people to go. And so at that point, it was like, well, do we close it? Because now we're becoming a, a hotspot for the virus. And um, and so it, the, the COVID-19 uh, epidemic really forced us to rethink how do we activate these spaces? How do we use our streets so they are um, uh, open and um, safe for people to move through? Um, but also what are the impacts in other spaces like schools? So kids went back to school. Um, they did their best to remain safe. Um, but a lot of the schools limited volunteers coming in. Mm. And how has that changed? Have we seen a return of volunteers to the schools? Um, how is that impacting uh, the uh, learning in the classroom and the support that teachers feel that they have from the parents and the relationships that now uh, result from maybe not having grandma in the front, reading all the teachers as they come in and you know um, helping the kids get their coat on right and zipping up their backpacks. We haven't seen that return of community in some of these institutions as, as as fully as we were at prior to the pandemic. And so while we've seen some positive shifts in greater investment in parks, greater investment in transit, we've also seen some pullback and not a return to even the previous levels of community, of the relationships that... Um, not only kind of support the um the the social well-being but the mental well-being yeah, the, yeah. the the connections that really buoy us through hard times i it's just it's so true um i one of the areas one of the dimensions of community and i think realities it, it 
playing out in many cities, particularly urban core neighborhoods in many cities across the country, are just the issues around crime. Yeah. And and so crime, um, again, I've been out <laughs> meeting with some of our residents and staff and, and police leadership. Crime actually decreased this this last year, which I think is is fabulous. Yet we still have real hot spots. Uh, we've been we've been working and talking with uh, police and city leadership uh, and Sandra Samuels and the folks over at NAS recently. Um, and and we still have so the reclaiming of community. And, and, and the reinvigoration of community, I think, is in physical community. Um, what, 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 what is your sense of kind of how that's playing out just in terms of kind of crime trends and trying to what, what are the things we need to be thinking about mm -hmm. as we try to reclaim community, particularly in some of these tougher neighborhoods that, you know, really do have continued hotspots of crime? Yeah. Paul, that's uh, that's one of the hardest questions um, to answer uh, because uh, crime is not just um, a matter of someone stealing. People aren't aren't stealing uh, or you know um, assaulting individuals uh, necessarily because they want to, um, but there's something behind it. There's some need, right? You're you're absolutely right. So your point that that what's behind the crime, I think, is is absolutely. And so some of the things that we've been talking about, for example, in, in the NAS conversation is, um, is how do we reclaim and rebuild community? How can we, within the community, kind of retake? One, we do need safety and we do need protection in some cases, but we also need to uh, rebuild and kind of reclaim the narrative. Yes. Uh, I think of Lake Street on the on on you know the South Side Lake Street uh, at, at coming out of the ashes of of uh, you know post George Floyd riots. Um, Lake Street actually I think is thriving. Mm -hmm. It's alive and it is alive largely because of communities of color and, yes. and immigrant communities. Um, and there's lots going on there, and that's that's not a narrative that you would necessarily hear. If you if you talk to kind of the mainstream media and or mainstream communities, for example, out in the suburbs. And so mm -hmm. so part of it, I do think, is about narrative. So my question about what what do we need to be thinking about narrative is one of those things. And and your point, what's behind the crime, I think, is is right on point. Yes. You know that. Well, so, you know, I'll add to that um, and I'll I'll give you a, a, a quick story. Um so when I, I was living in Virginia and uh, my husband and I bought a new computer um, and we were thinking about what we were going to do with this one. And, you know, we recall that there was a family uh, just a couple of houses down who um, the three kids who were being raised by their grandma didn't have a computer. And so they would periodically use ours. So uh, we said, you know, let's set up this computer for um, the family um, and not only like give them the computer, but continue to engage with them so they have a path to understand how best to use it. And there's the relationship. Um, and I and I give that example um, because and it, and it kind of goes back to this question of what's behind the crime. So, you know, the kids. These days, they need devices to do their homework. Yeah. And so if they don't have it, then somehow they're going to get it because they need it to do the work um, or they're going to get it to do something else. 
And so why wouldn't we use the relationship and activate the relationship in community to not just provide the thing, but to help with the application and the higher use of that item. Um, so those kids, our neighbors, um, can succeed just as much as we want our own kids to succeed. Um, the other piece here, Paul, is when you think about neighborhoods that are um, safe, um, those neighborhoods um, have a fair amount of, of active presence and engagement and they're activated. So people are on the street, people are sitting on the porches, folks are stopping by. Um, and so it's that activation and aliveness of communities that I know PPL um, works on intensely because it's not just a house. It's the relationships and it's the community and it's the um, mentoring that is key. And then, you know, maybe just the last thing that uh, I think is core to this presence and the relationship is ownership. And so it's ownership going back um, to uh, where you started uh, of the narrative. It's ownership that this is our community. Things are going well. Let me tell you what's going well. And to carry that good news in all of the spaces where it's not being heard. We know that bad news travels, good news needs to be carried. Oh. And so that good news, the ownership of that good news and carrying it from space to space and showing how active and engaged and present and committed we are in relationships to making sure our spaces are not just safe, but they're thriving, um, I think is a critical uh, investment and in, in, in intervention that um, we can continue to make. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's really so, so well said. Uh, I want to uh, shift a little bit to health equity, um, uh, which is again obviously coming out of the, the pandemic is is uh, is a is a big topic being talked about in a lot of places, um, um, and and for us again, race in particular has been a a key dimension of of health of health equity. Um, can you can you to, to to the extent that you've kind of spent some time thinking about this, can how does race play a role? Um, in understanding health equity and and how can community builders like PPL um, and public leaders more broadly, um, how, how do we need to be thinking about integrating that health and, and advancing health equity in community? Health equity, uh, the way I, I perhaps explain it best and how I think about it, um, and we've seen these examples before. It's it's that it's the race, right? So you have one um, individual who's at the starting line, but they have uh, a little extra weight on their back. So perhaps they're carrying someone, and uh, and so let's say I'm carrying someone, and I'm you know racing against you, Paul. But you have all clear path ahead, so you can jump the hurdles, you can run. But I have to carry someone along that track. Or maybe I don't get to start at the same time you do. Um, that that notion of equity, not specifically health equity, but that notion of equity allows you to um, uh, focus on your education, uh, to not worry that when you get home, if the lights don't turn on, it's because the bill wasn't paid. Well, maybe the fuse just blew. You don't have that um, that mental strain and worry that those who are carrying someone or have to start a little later that they can't get to they can't go to school 
um, uh, 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 because they have to take care of things at home or someone is sick at home because there's not insurance. That mental weight um, creates an embodiment of anxiety mm -hmm. and anxiety we know leads to illness leads to your body breaking down, leads to us not sleeping. There's a great study that came out of, uh, that came out of MIT by a, um, a postdoc named Patrice Williams. And what Patrice did was she looked at uh, the Atlanta Beltline. The Atlanta Beltline uh, hits 44 neighborhoods in kind of a circle around the main downtown uh, core of Atlanta. And she uh, she uh, engaged um, residents in historically black neighborhoods, and she asked them, "How has this increased development um, and increased property value costs, and thus tax costs? How is that impacting you?" Mm -hmm. And what she found is that folks who are under that stress of displacement, of not having access to good schools, um, they're not sleeping. They're not sleeping and you heal when you sleep, <laughs> you grow when you sleep. And so if as a first marker, the canary in the mine, that first marker is that you're not sleeping as well, that is the first domino that leads to disease and illness and early death. And so when we think about communities that have the continued burden of, um, poor access to healthy foods, poor recreational facilities or limited, um, uh, uh, increased um, uh, presence of, of, of police without the relationships um, that are critical for um, that to be effective. There's the stress that leads to, <laughs> whether it's the sleep or illness, that doesn't allow us to be as effective in the work that we all uh, can do here in our community. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, again, for us in, in our work on the ground here at PPL, it, it's challenging, right? Because historically it's like, well, health or health equity, I mean, we just leave that to the hospitals and to the medical systems. And, and, and the truth is for us seeing um, in our residents, for example, 3,500 folks live with PPL every night, you know, vast majority of them are, are mm -hmm. people of color. Um, we see the increased mental health stresses that have been there for quite some time, but were just completely exacerbated by, uh, by the pandemic. Um, we see the impact of addiction and fentanyl in particular yes. uh, has been devastating uh, for, for our communities. Um, and, and, and I love the way you, you frame that. Anxiety leads to illness, stress, um, uh, uh, and, and the lack of sleep as, as an early indicator of that. I, I mean, we really do see a lot of that in our residents and in our neighborhoods. And so um, figuring out how to integrate mm -hmm. health equity strategies and thinking into our housing work, into our employment and training work has, has been a challenge for us that we're really working hard on. Um, are, is the, yeah, go ahead. Paul, there's, there's some really powerful data uh, that, describes um, some of these measures around sleep and um, even travel time to work and um, alcohol, alcohol consumption that vary by neighborhood. So one of the phrases um, that we've 
heard thrown around is that your zip code is a stronger predictor of your health outcome yes. than your genetic code. I'll say that again. Your zip code is a stronger predictor of your health outcome than your genetic code. And what that means is that if you live in a neighborhood where, um, uh, where there are certain you know, variables that, that exist there, you will see a shorter lifespan. And so I don't have the maps in front of me. I'm happy to pull them. But he, even here in the Twin Cities, there's a 20-year gap uh, in life expectancy from one neighborhood to another. And those neighborhoods are just five miles apart. Yeah. Do you want me to pull that data? <laughs> because I could uh, give you some numbers. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I mean, I, 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 you, that was one of our questions was, was, I mean, again, I think that's the perfect example you know where 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 literally the data shows you that zip code you know is so is so profound and and where you where you live and where you um grew up in particular uh are really profound indicators of life expectancy um i was gonna uh, ask you just about um just kind of areas of of work and research going on at the humphrey school um and and I, it related to these sets of issues, are there particular areas that you you all are kind of really um, seen as fruitful and exciting uh, in terms of of the work of the of the of the student body and and the professors at the Humphrey School research? Oh, absolutely. So we, um, you know, we have six degree programs um, in public policy. Uh, our Masters of Public Policy program. Uh, Professor Joe Soss is doing really some fantastic work on um, justice and policing, as is uh, Kathy Quick, who's in our nonprofit leadership area. Um, we have a very uh, strong national program in, in election administration. And with uh, the elections coming up this year, I think it is critical that um, that we broadly lean into um, our civic duty uh, to um, uh, to shape uh, the um, the body that will govern us um, uh, by way of uh, those who are elected um, in the November election and in all elections. Um, that is just a critical duty. And so election administration is a core area for us. The, uh, uh, the Minnesota or uh, Minneapolis uh, uh, Women's Foundation, Minnesota Women's Foundation, they have been a strong partner uh, with us through the Center for Women, Gender, and Public Policy. And uh, one of the reports that came out last year focuses on the pay gap uh, for women, um, in particular here in the state of Minnesota. And it is, it's drastic. Um, it, it's quite surprising. And uh, what I value about the work that Christina Ewig is doing in partnership with the Minnesota Women's Foundation is that she's not just naming the problem, but she's highlighting solutions. Um, and those solutions are anchored in policy um, and uh, and in other areas. And so um, we oh. have work in early childhood education um, and we just launched our sustainability leadership certificate. And so that certificate as many of our other certificates are really intended to support uh, working professionals who are in the field and are interested in just upskilling and adding that additional um, training that they need so they can 
um, have a bigger impact in their company. One of the things that I found in my previous role uh, when I was uh, at Georgia Tech is that companies would, you know, hire a lot of new folks and um, the people who had been there for 10 or 15 or 20 years, they just didn't have the skill sets needed for the current environment. And so one of the things that I'm really interested in doing here at the Humphrey School is making sure that those um, individuals, whether you're in public policy or public affairs, human rights, whatever the space is that you're in and you're interested in impacting, you can get the just-in-time training you need to continue to have impact in your role. And if you're in biology or education or something else, you can come and get that just-in-time training. <laughs> So you can have an impact um, in the spaces that you want to here in our community. Yeah, well, and uh, again, it, it, the, the work in, in several of those areas, I mean, it makes me, the, the question that was running through my mind is, I mean, you, you all are working across the private sector, across government, across the community and the nonprofit sector. I mean, what, what, what is key to kind of having influence Mm -hmm. in changing policy and in, in kind of across those areas? How, how do your folks um, make a difference in each of those areas? In addition, beyond doing the research and finding the data, what does it take to really move those different sectors? Paul, I would, uh, I would say you presented the answer earlier and it goes back to kind of relationship um, in uh, kind of not necessarily knowing the people, but knowing the story, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, knowing what's important to this community uh, and how fast and how slow to push. Um, and then who to bring along with you. And so, you know, when I uh, think about um, relationship and I think about PPL, um, the institutions that PPL has in your network, you each um, serve a particular aspect of the solution um, that you're attempting to realize. And uh, where uh, there may be overlap, you navigate through it because it's not necessarily the, um, uh, the, the institution itself that is a focus, it's the clients, it's the community that needs the help. And so relationship is a push and pull. And then you know the story of the community. And so um, you know where um, uh, folks need a bit more help and where things may be able to wait for a little while. Um, and you know where the resources are to be able to pull them into the solution. And so this one of the strengths of the Humphrey School is that we are uh, the Humphrey School for the state of Minnesota. We are the Humphrey School for public affairs, not necessarily of public affairs. We are here to serve the community. And so what that means is that we are um, graduates and our um, friends are, we're in relationship with the institutions and the individuals. And we know the stories of this place um, to, to, to best know how and how, how much to push and challenge the current status quo um, to create something new. Um, but if you don't know, uh, if you don't have that that awareness and you know where to push and pull, then sometimes things break. Mm. And, uh, and you know, I guess it's okay to break sometimes, but I think it's better when you can um, 
push things in a way that you bring people along with you, um, uh, it's a bit more sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would turn the question around to you, Paul. How, how have you seen, how have you seen, uh, um, uh, this in your own work? Yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't know that people get to ask me questions. Uh, <laughs> it's, it Isn't is, that what happens on podcasts? It, right. Yeah. It's a two-way conversation. You're absolutely right. Um, I, I like a lot, um, uh, what you said about, you know, we're in relationship with this place. And for us at PPL, um, you know, equity um, is is woven throughout all of our work. And, and equity means a lot of things. It means voice. It means engagement. It means intentionality. And so for us, um, first of all, we, we said that our work needs, we need to, to, to work up on ourselves in our own house. We need to walk the walk before we go and talk the talk. And so um, our internal work um, and our rootedness in our communities is essential to our ability to influence others. We've been much more active, for example, at the state legislature in the last couple of years because we carry the stories, as yes. you said, the stories of 3,500 folks who live with us every night. We don't need to make anything up. We don't. We, I mean, we, our biggest challenge is how do we capture and how do we accelerate the voices? We had a graduate of one of our training programs go up and testify last session in front of the, the Senate Jobs Committee. And he came out of there and, and one, it, he, was a, he was a very... He had a very powerful message about the need for training programs. But, but what was most powerful was when he came out of there, he said, I feel so good about this. He said, I feel great. I feel powerful. Yes. And, and, uh, and for us, when we activate voice and confidence, right, there's a reason that pride is in the name of Project for Pride and Living. We believe in dignity, in inner confidence. And I know you know from your work with young people over the years, when young people discover or bring forth that confidence, they are powerful, powerful uh, uh, thinkers, contributors, producers. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so for us, influencing the private sector is about having real authenticity and rootedness in community. We are super clear about about the folks that live with us and come through our training programs. This has everything to do with the economic competitiveness of the state of Minnesota, right? Mm -hmm. we, we, we desperately need these young people to succeed, right? If we want the state's economy to succeed, it's about workforce. I don't need Absolutely. to talk about this as a charity anymore, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, uh -uh. This is about economic competitiveness. And so it's a, it's a business proposition. Uh, and that's why we like to talk about investment in in community and the building of community. So aren't you glad you asked that question? <laughs> oh, I am. And, you know, and you are I, I think you're quoting a Federal Reserve study that showed that, you know, for I think it's every dollar investment in the early childhood care oh. leads oh. to an 18 fold impact oh. um, beyond. And so this is not charity. It's yeah. economic development. That's what it is. When you oh. invest in community, you invest in the growth 
uh, of the broader community and not just the people, but the economics, the education, the whole, the whole community. Yeah, yeah. Well, just one one closing question. So what, what are you most excited about when you think about the Humphrey School and, and your work there and, and kind of, uh, uh, kind of the, the era that we're leaning into? I, I don't know if it's post-pandemic, but, you know, here in Minnesota, but um, what, what most excites you as you look forward? Paul, um, I believe in the power of youth. In every fiber of my being, I believe in the power of youth. And while there are um, challenges in front of us on multiple fronts, I know that the work we are doing in our community here at the Humphrey School, at the University of Minnesota, at PPL, um, that we are investing in youth. I remember there was a young lady at uh, one of your breakfast programs about a year ago, and she exude courage. Um, and that courage uh, uh, seemed to um, not just come from her DNA and her mom, <laughs> but from the community that she talked about in that breakfast speech. And so what am I most excited about? I'm excited about the students who are graduating from the Humphrey School as our kind of traditional graduates going out and having positive impact on the world. I'm excited about the youth summer program that we are starting this summer. Um, we are uh, hoping to serve youth focusing on planning, advocacy, and resilience, climate resilience, middle school kids. So these kids aren't immediately coming into the Humphrey School. But what it does is it opens this world of public service and leadership to them at this early age so they can explore it in high school. I'm excited about the Humphrey Book Prize that will be awarded to, grad to um, uh, rising high school seniors throughout the state of Minnesota. And those, senior those rising high school seniors who are selected by their schools most exemplify the characteristics of public service and public leadership um, as uh, demonstrated by Vice President Hubert Humphrey. I'm excited about our youth, and so I'm excited about our future. Yeah, that's great. And I I just, uh, so many um, good, wonderful takeaways. I just jotted a few down. I mean, I, I believe in the power of youth, as you just said. You talked about the ownership of narrative and how important that is. You talked about healthy and unhealthy choices that our young people need to make. I think the point you just made about confidence and courage, uh, absolutely on on the on the nose. Bad news travels. Good news needs to be carried. Um, I think a fantastic insight. Um, knowing the story and knowing the people. Um, uh, the importance of being in relationship with this place, with this state. Um, and I loved what you said about if you don't know where or where and or when to push or pull, something might break. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, again, really, really fabulous uh, insights. And so thank you so much uh, for your time and your insight and for your partnership with, with us here at, uh, at PPL. Great discussion uh, uh, and, and, and insight. And, and thank all of you for listening in today. I'm Paul Williams from PPL, and this has been the Race, Place, and Policy podcast. We'd love to hear what you have to think as well. Drop us a note at communications at ppl-inc.org. Uh, we hope you'll subscribe and sign up for notifications from wherever it is that you get your podcasts. 
You can always find us uh, on our website at ppl-inc.org. And until next time, be safe and be happy. Thank you so much.